Hello, and thank you for tuning in. I am Anna Miljatski, Professor of Architecture at MIT and Director of the Critical Broadcasting Lab. And on behalf of the Architectural League of New York and the Critical Broadcasting Lab, I welcome you to our architecture podcast series titled, I Would Prefer Not To. This season of the podcast is supported in part by the Graham Foundation. I Would Prefer Not To is an oral history project conducted through audio interviews on the topic of perhaps the most important kind of refusal in architects' toolboxes, refusal of the architectural commission. By definition, the topic of refusal stays hidden from public scrutiny and thus also hidden from history. Withdrawals of this kind tend not to leave paper trails and are not easy to examine or learn from. And yet the lessons contained in architects' deliberations about and decisions not to engage are politically relevant and urgent. Decisions to not engage a commission or types of commissions or commissions with certain characteristics inevitably forfeit potential profit, placing other values above it, at least momentarily. I'm talking to Anne Louis and Craig Reschke today. Thank you for joining me, Anne and Craig. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Anne Louis and Craig Reschke founded their Chicago-based architecture and design research office in 2015. They have both practiced in different firms, including SOM, where they met before starting Future Firm. Future Firm has been engaged in design of exhibition spaces and exhibitions, residential and commercial buildings, in speculative urban and territorial work, transformation of local building code, and in general, they have made cultivating the vibrancy of their city their priority. The word is that they tend to seek out or to be found by Chicago's changemakers. In addition to Future Firm, Craig co-founded Hem House to help intervene in the contemporary residential market with design-forward projects. They're currently teaching together at IIT. Anne is an assistant professor of practice at the University of Michigan. She was a co-curator of, of the U.S. Pavilion at the Venice Architecture Biennale in 2018 with a project titled Dimensions of Citizenship. She co-edited Public Space Lost and Found, and in 2020, she worked with me on Log54 co-authoring. Future Firm's work has been exhibited at Exhibit Columbus, Storefront for Art and Architecture, Shenzhen, Hong Kong, Bi-City Biennial of Architecture and Urbanism, New Museums Ideas City, and the Chicago Architecture Center. So, Future Firm, as always, I hope that we will be able to discuss some aspects of your body of work so far by talking first about the work you have not done. We can start with your most memorable decision to not engage or to drop a commission, or if that has not yet happened, can you imagine it happening and on what grounds? Okay, maybe I will start and then we can expand from there. Yeah, are you going to start with the most recent one? Yeah, I'm going to start with the most recent one. We recently um, said no to an opportunity, and um, it is very fresh in my mind, so I will try to explain it in the most objective way possible so that um, when we're thinking about it, we can see if the, the decision was, was right. Um, we were approached by a large architecture firm who... In their defense, we had previously reached out to to try to partner with them. Um, and they said that they had a client, a university client with whom they've been doing a lot of projects and a university client with whom it is notably hard to get projects in Chicago. And a small window of opportunity had appeared because one of the previous firms that was doing a lot of work with this university, their um, like principal had retired. And so they had an opportunity to look at a really large project. So I would say over 10 times the scale in fee and square footage than any of our other projects. And they had been asked by their client to build a more diverse team. And their client had wanted to pair them with a, a woman or minority owned business. But they had come up with the idea that instead of partnering with the person that their client had suggested, they would bring women and minority firms to the table. And Future Firm is a registered woman and minority owned firm. Um, and so they reached out to us. The caveat of this invitation to prom was that they wanted to present two options for two different um, minority owned firms for the client to select from, whether they wanted large firm plus 
minority firm A or minority firm B. Um, I personally was reacted really negatively to this uh, to this proposal, <laughs> and I brought it to Craig, Linda, Armel, and Donna, the kind of folks at the firm with whom we make decisions about go and no go. Will you summarize how the team responded? <laughs> because I think it is maybe insightful to our firm's yeah. characters. <laughs> I, I think that everyone on the we went around the table and everyone on the team said we should do it because we are interested in working for universities. We're interested in this kind of work. Uh, let's just go for it, and we can, you know, can, we can get past this asking asking two people out on a date issue. Um, and we we had some discussion about it. So that was like kind of the initial vote. And then Anne kind of Anne said her side of the her interpretation of it that it was kind of that it was insulting that they approached it in this way. And and the team all agreed. So we, we basically came up with a plan that we were going to tell them, sure, we'll do this, but in order to do it, we need X, Y, and Z. And we made a list of frankly, unreasonable demands that we knew that they would say no to. Um, but I think it was a way of kind of setting, um, I think it was a way of, of turning it down by setting a standard for ourselves um, is maybe one way to put it. So it was both interesting to see the group's reaction and then also to see how we strategize to, to kind of say no to it in a way that wasn't, wasn't just saying no and walking away, but was kind of setting the standard for ourselves. Well, and I think our different personalities were like revealed through the discussion of it. And um, like Linda, for example, I think she was, she kind of said, it doesn't matter the conditions under which these people asked us, if we can be part of it, do a good job and potentially show this client that like we are the firm that is doing interesting and meaningful work, that actually is, the, I think Linda's point of view is the best revenge is living well, you know, like <laughs> if we're the key about breakup. I think Armel and Donna um, were maybe like, I think once we kind of framed it this way, it was something that we could all get on board with. But I think I still feel really on the fence about this project. I felt like my emotions really maybe shaped how we as a team thought about it, but maybe that's also crediting too much to myself, but um, I just like this binders full of women approach was just like crushing um, because too many times we, or I specifically, and uh, many people at that table have been approached as token participants. And it's just like, it's after so long working with other clients who respect us and come to us for our design expertise, our point of view, like, man, it hurts for somebody to call and say like, do you want to be one of, one of, one of two minority firms? <laughs> <laughs> Who, let me say, the other firm was just, like, totally different from us, like, had nothing in common with us other than they were also woman-led. So what would you say is the generalizable kind of dimension of this no? Especially the first time we said no of this kind. I don't mm. know. What do you think? I think it was a bigger no because it was a project that had a, a potential for a much of bigger impact. I also think it was kind of easier to say no because it was for a lab building at a university that we just like didn't. Sure, it would have been a big fee and maybe it would have been an interesting design project, but it wouldn't have been that interesting. It wasn't a like, design project. Yes, the like Asian American natural, you know, National History Museum or something. Yeah, I, I think the generalizable no is no to people who come to us under the wrong banner. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. no to people who fly the wrong flag when they pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. But it also sounds like there are other no's that maybe we want to hear about. Mm. We started, when you invited us to be on the podcast, we started <laughs> trying to make a list of them because some of them are further back. Though at the beginning, there are probably many yeses we could talk about that were huge mistakes. Um, oh, we will. The... <laughs> the, um, the there was a nonprofit um, kind of educational academy. Workforce that we, development. That we turned down. 
I am thinking about a project, a nonprofit came to us that was workforce development. It was like mission aligned with what we do, but they had an owner's rep who had convinced them that they could do the project in six weeks for $5. <laughs> I mean, the six weeks is true. The $5 is only slightly less than what they um, had. And not to say like we are disparaging small budget projects, but they're just like budget and ambitions were not aligned and their owner's rep had too much um, sway with them. So they had unreasonable expectations. That was an example of a no that I think has to just do with the feasibility of the project. But that was another example of a no where we still, we gave them a proposal and we said, this doesn't meet what you asked of us, but if you want to do this project and do it, well, right, you need yeah. this much schedule and you need this much budget. So if you are willing to work within those parameters, like we'd be, we'd mm-hmm. work with you. And of course yeah. they said no. Yeah. yeah. What other no's are you thinking about? Uh, we had a good list. Um, yeah, there was the dance studio. Oh, that was, I think our first, that, I think that was our first big no, no that yeah. was like a kind of institutional client through a important owner's rep that brought it to us. Yeah. Uh, owner's rep brought a potential nonprofit renovating a building, um, on the South side for a dance Academy, which is a project I think we would be great at. Um, but their owner did not, the leader of the organization did not have the support of his own people because of statements he had made that were racist and that were not properly addressed. So I would say in that case, it was not strictly about the comments, though certainly that was a big part of it. It was more that we felt that he didn't have buy-in from his own stakeholders and his own community, and therefore the project would be um, very challenging. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that makes it sound like I'm diminishing the comments, but it was, um, if he had made the comments and then he had apologized and he had a plan to pivot leadership and there was a board that was clear about this plan, I think we could have done it. But, um, in the context, I think it felt like too big of a challenge for us. That was, I think the first big no. Maybe some more will come up as, as we go. Um, so maybe I move us a little bit in a different direction. I'm hoping that we can discuss uh, the mechanics of your collaborations with clients. In an interview, you told um, of a time when you were asked about community engagement mm-hmm. and your answer pointed to a kind of embeddedness embeddedness in the context that seemed pretty special uh, and worth discussing here, I think, in relation to commissions that you do take. Yeah. I think we say we... We say we don't do community engagement, but I think out of context, that actually is the wrong answer, (laughs) Um, which is that the majority of our clients are the community, meaning they are residents of neighborhoods or small business owners or nonprofits that have been working in communities of color, often disinvested communities for their entire lives and careers. So we usually follow the leads of our clients in how they take on community engagement because it's like very different for every project. A nonprofit is going to reach out in a different way than a small business who they know everybody who comes in their ice cream shop or their cafe. Um, I think that when folks ask about community engagement is usually through the lens of a developer that is not embedded in a community who's coming to do a project and they are an outsider to that neighborhood. So the architect like participates in this project of, Sometimes when they're doing a great job, going door to door, doing like real kind of engagement. Sometimes like the least version of that is like the pro forma community meeting. Some of our clients do that kind of work anyway because they are publicly funded or they want um, additional feedback or they want to kind of engage and get buy-in of a different scale. But for the most part, we are not working with folks who are new to the communities that they are working in. So we have less often that hurdle to overcome. And you have repeat clients, no? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do you sort of see that in the context of this question? Does that make you part of the community? (laughs) I don't know. Community. Such a word that means everything and nothing at the same time. I think for what it's worth, many of our projects are folks who are trying to make change and make change against the odds. In Chicago, that is a very specific thing, meaning there are many barriers to the projects, including access to capital, including various bureaucratic and government obstacles, including just like everything is harder in communities where um, there hasn't been a lot of construction and development in the last 
50, 100 years. Um, but so I think that in the course of overcoming these obstacles, which we have to do not like within an architect's traditional kind of like we do the drawings and then we give those to you and then we like run away and discard all responsibility that's not identified in the AIA contract. Um, instead, we are doing a lot of kind of personal negotiations to get through the steps it takes to bring the project into the world. And that means like calling on everybody, everybody in the office, like your friends, the people you know, the people you know, you like all the, and in the end, we end up as a kind of bigger community that is, we are tied to, but our clients are tied to and our expanded networks are tied to. Um, so like, I don't think it's fair for Craig or I to say like, because we've done work in Garfield Park, we are like now like from the Garfield Park community, certainly our lives have not um, faced some of the kind of obstacles of folks who are residents of that neighborhood. But we like are part of the community now in the sense that like we are tied by blood, sweat and tears um, to the folks who are uh, doing work there. I think that's right. Uh, we might go there again through a slightly different venue, but um, let me ask you first, you know, your firm is fairly young as, as these things go, uh, but would you say that the criteria for the work that you take and pursue and conversely don't take on changed over the course of its lifespan, lifespan already? And if so, how? Yes, absolutely. I think when we hung the sign Future Firm on our live workspace in 2015, we had, we didn't know what we were getting into. We were fresh out of graduate school and was teaching. I was on a grant doing research. We thought like, oh yeah, we'll start a firm. I had just recently gotten my license and we thought like, oh, we want to do some building projects. How do we, how do we go about getting those projects and who should we work for? Um, and I think at the time we were maybe excited to do building work and through that excitement took on uh, projects that walked through the door, uh, many of which were residential because that is the kind of scale at which I think people will trust young architects. Um, and I think residential as a kind of category, uh, like single family residential working for an owner is something that we have phased out almost completely at this point. Because we're so bad at it in a way. Because, well, we're bad at it. It like, it doesn't, it is very hard, I think, for us to respond to one person's needs in an interesting way. Um, one of Anne's mentors made a joke about like, oh yeah, residential, at some point you just are like counting people's socks to figure out how much closet space they need. And like you have to, and, and I feel like if any of our residential clients, I don't think we're actually bad at it. And like, I don't think their project is going to leak, but I don't think like their project is not going to leak or fall down. But I sense there are people who like there is have like a real point of view about tile and finishes and fixtures and like dwelling space in a way that Craig and I personally really <laughs> struggle to muster excitement. Uh, yeah. But there are also <laughs> really good things that came out of that phase of the practice, Office of the Public Architect being one of them because we opened an office on the South Side where there are very few architecture firms and the people that called us had building violations, which was something we didn't, I think at the time, even really know existed yeah. um, and kind of opened up uh, 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 opened up an idea of kind of trying to address the bigger systemic problem mm -hmm. um, that produced those violations in the first place. But yes, we say no to residential now. I mean, we've done some like single family residential for owner-occupied homes. That's a very technical <laughs> way to say it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Nobody really comes to us with high-end residential, so we can't really say like we're saying no to those, but there's something about the future for ethos that people do not think we are going to design their like great $1,000 square foot home in Michigan or whatever. Yeah. S sadly, I mean, maybe we could. But I, it's um, the, the the more we have articulated the kind of work that we want to do out loud to others, the more that work has come to the firm. Yes. So we now primarily work for nonprofits, public sector clients, um, some developers doing multifamily or, or kind of larger scale projects. But those are the things that have an impact on the city at the scale at which I think mm -hmm. we bring 
better work to the table. So better ideas. Here's another sort of maybe it's another client relationship question, but I wanted it to kind of see it through the night gallery and the way in which your research on the city might have impacted the kinds of clients or client relationships you want to foster or how these kinds of activities might be part of that uh, continuum, right, of thinking about what projects, how you intervene in the city, how you see the city and understand the city. Yeah, I think we did Night Gallery for five years when we were in our Bridgeport location, which was a storefront, so it was very easy to do it into the window and throw a party on the street. Um, Then we did one year where we were out in the city, so we partnered with other small businesses who also have um, event organizing interests, so a barbershop on the west side, Principal Barbers, and then Silver Room, uh, our client friend Eric Williams um, on the south side. And then we did one year in Columbus, Indiana, um, specifically curating things around night shift workers as part of a project for Exhibit Columbus. Um, We really need to figure out how to do it now that we've moved to the office to the loop. And maybe it is like some kind of metaphor about the scale of the firm that now the firm is downtown and we're like up on the third floor. We haven't yet figured out how to throw this like low key, easy party where we just buy beer and get um, movie candy. Uh, we need to figure out how to do it. I think we're trying to think about how to potentially activate vacant storefronts in the Loop area, which is Chicago's downtown, um, because I think it has been important for us to cultivate, to be part of trying to make mm-hmm. a city that is more awesome at night and in the day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I think our clients do it too, right? I don't know. They are We are fellow travelers of mm-hmm. making the city more fun mm-hmm. for everyone. <laughs> Very cheesy. <laughs> you, you wrote scholarly articles on redlining and building violations. You've speculated on the role of the architect through that lens. And you've taken on the architectural work that addresses violations, legalization, as well as advocacy for code transformation. So I was hoping you could tell us more about all of this, about this dimension of work and sort of place it somehow within the... Uh, I don't know, the diagram of the firm for us. I think this is where you have to share your bumper sticker idea again. I feel like if we say the bumper sticker idea enough, somebody will make it. Uh, I think one of the, because we work for clients that are often approaching projects with smaller budgets, big ambitions, we have to make sure that we have everything kind of, that we, that we understand the code, we understand the approach they're taking and that we can, defend them in the field when they are building something and a field building inspector says that they want to see something else. A specific example of this is something like a sprinkler system, which at many firms, if you're kind of on the fence, the firm will just say, okay, put in the sprinkler system. For us, we have to kind of craft an argument that, okay, that we can't do this. We have to save some money. We're okay with the uh, health, safety, welfare kind of implications. And that becomes a, I think a skill that we bring to the table to to advocate for our clients when they are going through permit review, which is something that is universally despised across all Chicagoans from like the person that wants to just renovate their kitchen to the mega developer. Uh, So our colleague Kiefer and I are always kind of talking about uh, ways that the building department could do better. All of our clients are thinking about it and Kiefer came up with a, a slogan Socialists and developers agree, reform the DOB, which is a bumper sticker we want to make. I think I, I, I will frame this in, like, I think that, and maybe if you, I, this is how I explain it to students, like, if you graduate and you work for a, a, a larger or fancier boutique firm, you will never have to deal with the permitting process because your clients, let's say you're working in Chicago, like in the kind of very narrow picture of Chicago, like your clients will be big enough that they will go through something called developer services. So they're not reviewed by plan reviewers who are like the, um, like, I don't know, DOB's frontline workers. You will like your project will have an expediter who will usher the project through that process. They, you will have a fancy zoning zoning attorney that the client paid for. You will also have, the client will also have a variety of other fancy attorneys who will help get licensing and other permits that are required. 
you'll have a fancy general contractor who will have themselves fancy attorneys and staff who have deep relationships at the DOB, but who also can expedite their own permits for street closures, for um, utility service connections, et cetera, et cetera. But if you are a small business owner and you have a cafe or a taqueria or an ice cream shop or a boba shop, like you don't have any of that. And you just have the architect who over the course of this project has also, in the case of Future Firm, become emotionally involved and cares about your project as if it is their own. So we end up doing a lot of um, engagement with the city um, and its various delegates who, for a range of reasons, see the projects, small projects that we work on as always like trying to do the minimum, right? When actually our clients are trying to do the maximum. And that is like something that is really challenging to try to get people to change their mindset about. There is, sure, institutional racism, I think is like part of the bigger story that we all reckon reckon with. But I think actually the day-to-day issue is like bureaucratic red tape, um, which just gets like tangled up in the stupidest ways. And developers of a larger scale build it into their budgets to untangle that red tape. Small developers, small business owners don't. They save all their money, 500K for construction costs, and that's all they got. So I think the advocacy we were doing is, like, for me, an equity issue, even though I'm sure developers also agree that we need to kind of make the process of doing construction and development, like, better and easier in Chicago. Because for the most, at the smaller end of the scale, in Chicago, that's everything from like six unit apartments and smaller, including kind of build outs. When the, because of those challenges, we end up with the lowest common denominator. So there is, if you want, a, if you are a developer and you want to build a six unit, there's one architect in town. Uh, you go to that architect, you pay him 20,000 bucks. He gives you the plans. Everyone at city review has seen the plans 8,000 times. So they move them right along. You get your permit right away. Um, this person is a terrible architect. He was recently uh, sued and it went all the way to the Illinois Supreme Court. And in the brief, he says, oh yeah, I kind of wing it with my structural calculations. So it is like the, 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 the restrictions in place, the kind of clamp of the bureaucracy and the red tape. The reason this is something that I think Anne and I feel strongly about is because it results in bad architecture and uh, and uh, an uninteresting city. Also, I feel like um, we've been on podcasts lately where it sounds like we're burning the DOB and DPD. And actually, for me, it is the opposite. And I just want to you know say this into the public realm, which is that Kiefer also did this really amazing analysis of the number of city employees in DOB and DPD versus per capita in Chicago versus other major cities, New York, Miami, LA. And we are like one-tenth of the number so for the folks who are working these jobs, they also have 500 projects across their desk, right? They are spread super thin and they are also trying to mitigate risk in that they want to make sure that they're enforcing a, a, a safe environment. So like I can understand from their perspective, like they don't have the time to like get into conversation with Anne and Craig about like the bigger design ambitions of a project. On the other hand, like if we don't make space for that as a city, we will just have these tragic cookie cutter buildings mile after mile till the end, which seems like also not a good outcome. So far, I've sort of heard you say and, and read uh, you say that, you know, architecture or, or kind of a, put forward a position about architecture as advice, as advocacy, as help, as maintenance, maybe also as public discourse. Uh, and, and given that, but also because... I enjoy uh, checking out how my interlocutors tend to categorize their work. Mm-hmm. On your website, I read arts and cultural, residential, retail, exhibitions, and community. Mm-hmm. But rather than questioning these categories exactly, I'm interested in how you divide your work in the office and mm-hmm. how you would describe the feedback loops between these acts. Mm-hmm. They don't include, by the way, advice and activism and maintenance, which I, you I know. know, I think I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced exist as part of the work. Uh, yes, we don't have like a healthcare studio and a hospitality studio. We Even just like reason. your hours. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> what is the kind of ratio in a way 
or or how you make these works happen? Ah, that's a good I, question. I think it is changing. Uh, almost, it feels like in the past twelve months, the firm has grown a lot, and it that those the way we the way we work, the way we divide work, what Anne and I are doing in the office day to day, has also changed drastically. So there was recently a list of all the active projects in the office pinned up by Anne's desk, and there was I think twenty six on there. Yeah. Uh, and these are projects that are just starting all the way to projects that are kind of wrapping up construction administration. And from just like a very literal approach, Anne and I go down the list and we say, "You're in charge of this one, Craig, and you're in charge of this one," and and try to divide them up and keep them even. But as we have had hired more staff and taken on more projects, I find that Anne and I are doing less and less work reviewing the construction set or thinking about like, we don't really open the drawings anymore. We yeah. mark up the drawings and give them to the team. Um, and uh, I think an immense amount of our hours are actually spent on business development, going after Broadly new projects. Right. Yeah deciding which projects to say yes to, and also designing the infrastructure of the firm to make sure the now nine people that work for us have all of the tools that they need. But if you like, if you think about advocacy for projects, broadly writ, like every hour from us fighting for the plumbing a car mm, to yeah. building social and cultural capital to force to help advance things, it's probably 50-50 versus capital, capital A architecture. I, I will ask you now something about these typologies. Do you think of these typologies that you have currently developed, you know, regardless of where they may be going next, as typologies of clients or typologies of architecture? Oh, I also don't know. <laughs> I think they are typologies of architecture. I think That, that are on the website. That we are looking at the project and then putting it into one of those categories. But I think that's bad. I don't think we think about the work <laughs> that way. I know, I know. Well, this is like part of the... Craig, we've been starting to talk about expanding the firm, not to like do more, but to describe what we are doing better. And like one of... And <laughs> we have this idea. But one of the things is that actually like the kind of boutique architecture firm that I think it currently seems like we're running <laughs> into the world is really the tip of the iceberg. And certainly I'm sure that is the case of many other architecture firms. Like we've heard mass design groups speak about this too, right? That actually a lot of the work we're doing is helping to put together the capital, like helping to write the grant, helping to, um, you know, like amass the team. Like, and some people would call that owner's rep services, like owner project management, like developer for hire. But then like Craig also is like doing general contracting work. And like sometimes we end up doing like a little GC work here and there in order to fill a gap. Um, we do cost estimating. Like we actually do this whole array of things around the thing that we do that is in the business sense, billable hours that are currently not being billed, but also like important services that I think we provide that we don't share with anyone right now. Um, so that is something that I think is important for the future. Now, I've heard you uh, define architecture as an unexpected alignment of dozens of people around a shared idea, or at least I read this, uh, a definition that you know I would like very much. But you also said early in your career as Future Firm that you are, quote, the ones that start awkwardly dancing to jumpstart a bigger party. And these <laughs> images are both lovely and seem related. Um, and do they still ring true? I think so. I think the like metaphor of awkwardly dancing to get the start. <laughs> I mean, one, I think there is a literal. Yes, uh, we are both awkward dancers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think all of the things that Anne just described that Future Firm does that are kind of outside of the traditional role of the architect are things are that our clients needed and to move a project forward. Like we had to jump in and start doing those um, those additional tasks in order to push the project forward. But our clients are also the awkward dancers. Like all our clients are the person who are the first, not the first. Let's say 
all the party starters. Were, they're the party starters, right? Yeah. There, I mean, not to say like in all these communities that we're working on, there are like our million ideas like ready to get going, like you know. But they are the person who is like, I'll be out here with my PowerPoint deck, you know, like calling the people, saying like, you should invest in this, you should support this. Like I'll write the grant, I'll throw the idea out, and like future firm will make a rendering, and like with that, like we're off to the races. Um, it takes like I think a really specific kind of confidence to be the first awkward dancer because you look like a crazy person until other people join you, mm-hmm. and everyone is watching you. There is like a pressure, right? Because if other people don't join you, then you are just the weirdo on the dance floor. Um, confidence but it works. Or it works, right? Is it confidence or is it the kind of Ability to absorb risk. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I, I think sometimes it is actually not confidence from us and the our clients. It is about, in some cases, there is a need, right? Like somebody has to. And then in some cases, it is, like you said, um, a certain ability to not to close your eyes and your ears and just jump, um, which I think is risk tolerance. It's a form of risk tolerance, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and we just have to find, like, the others. <laughs> we have to find the bankers with that point of view. The thing about the bankers is that most of our clients have very sound uh, business and financial strategies for the architecture that they want to do. And yeah. it is the it is systemic racism yes. and disinvestment in certain areas of Chicago that is the, the reason they're not giving capital. It's... There are plenty of stupid people on the north side throwing money at really truly terrible projects. Terrible projects. Yeah. I, know, I know that's true. <laughs> now, speaking of the Chicago scene, you've uh, done great. Recently, you did a great presentation on the way that you think about it—a uh, kind of a map. And so, yes, the kind of boutique firm, the big firm, the uh, mm. and and when you. Uh, describe that to the public. You also were talking about wanting to expose the workings of the firm. And maybe in the spirit of that, let's talk to or try to relate your values, which are also listed on the website, with the projects or types of projects you have done, or more generally tell us about how you think about getting the work that you want, the the fact that you've gotten some of the work that you want. Or hmm. Good question. I think part of it started by listing the values on the website, which immediately <laughs> scares some people away <laughs> that we wouldn't want to work with, so they'd never even call, which is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I I think the values, they should be a living document in that as we get new team members and the firm evolves, we should revisit them. And I think we don't really actually have a good way right now of workshopping the values um, on the other hand, we feel strongly about them and think that they um, should in some ways be etched in stone, like you shouldn't be able to toss them out of the window just because your firm has grown or changed. Um, do you think of them as oriented towards your firm or towards your um, clients? Both. Both, and I think that that is one of the hard things to... Um, I think that that's one of the things that we find hard to balance because so like challenge the status quo. I think that means like challenge the status quo that we are challenge the status quo of architecture, but it also means challenge the status quo of how architects are uh, employed, what their working conditions look like, et cetera. And in order to balance that, there are some projects that we have taken on that I would say are developer-driven projects that have interesting things that the team uh, learns from and are uh, are not, I think, doing bad into the world, but maybe also aren't doing good into the world. But by taking on those projects, we have built the financial capacity to make sure that everyone that works for us has insurance. Everyone that works for us works reasonable hours. They rarely, if ever, work on weekends. They yeah. have um, kind of flexibility in their schedule. Um, so I think trying to build that kind of culture of the way we we act internally towards our employees has some relationship okay. with the projects that we end up taking. I on. think, yes, I think it is hard, but I think it's the right way to do it. I mean, we once told the team like this thing on it that Gediminas told me when I started working for him, which is bite the hand that feeds. And so like we told them that and then like now we have a 
Zoom chat channel for like office standards and the team like made the some, like description of it, bite the hand that feeds. And I immediately had the reaction. I was like, when I said that, I didn't mean like me, you know, like I didn't mean like critique, but like they do um, in a way that is challenging, but I think makes us all better. Um, so that is like, I think the hard balance, which is like, if we are going to act this way into the world, we also recognize that we have to like act that way in the firm as well. Um, and that means like challenging our own process and what we do and the things we take on. Um, but I think it what makes us a better firm in the long run. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I think that is challenging. But yes, when we mean bite the hand that feeds, like I mean like with our clients, we will be biting the larger hand that feeds, not we will be, you know, holding our clients' feet to the fire. But Sometimes we do. I'd say for the most part, like we feel very firmly that we are learning from our clients. So we rarely challenge them in quite the way that we would challenge the city or a funder or something like that. Mm -hmm. I I do want to keep probing a little bit the kind of procedures in the office. I saw the design manual that you also presented at the same event in which the kind of architecture scene gets drawn. Um, which seemed like a super important tool for thinking about values and design and how those intersect uh, in the office. And that seemed very specifically oriented towards the office. So uh, I'm assuming that you also have procedures uh, in which you're or kind of for events or, or ways by which you might be challenged by your by your office. But uh, so the question is, do you have procedures in place by which you both expose the office to the realities of running uh, the office and also invite the team to think collectively about commissions that you will and will not take? I think there's many parts of that. I think we, yes, we have been trying to design the firm as itself a design project. And like, that means we are probably like really painfully slow on things. Like it took us a very long time to reissue the handbook because at first the we just, handbook. the employee handbook. It's like at first we had just this like handbook that we bought from like an HR lady in the suburbs. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, that had like all this like generic language in it. And when we finally read it, I was like, this is bonkers. Like, there was one bullet point that was like, endeavor not to commit crimes. And I was like, okay, at the very least, we can say like, do not commit crimes, not endeavor not to commit crimes. Anyway, we had to like delete a lot of stuff because it just was totally unrelated to the culture. But then when we started rewriting it, and this is like the project of Office US, of course, and like it became very complicated. It was like, okay, we can't write a dissertation around photocopying, which like, yes, somebody did for our Office US manual. On the other hand, like we should think critically about all the pieces of this. So we've tried to, we call them the good books, but there are like a few different things that define the firm. And we've tried to like interrogate each one of them in sequence. So the employee handbook, the um, like design manual, which includes like technical standards, but also like QuickBooks and T-sheets, like how we do um, accounting of the firm's time um, and our hours and things like that. Um, we've tried to interrogate those critically and continue to. I think there are other small things too. Like we have a go, no go meeting with me and yeah. Anne and the folks that are like kind of categorized as project architects. And we have a Monday meeting with the entire firm uh, that we always end by saying, like, what do you all need? Or, like, what kind Where of things we can at, we yeah. change? So it's kind of an open conversation about who's working on what uh, and and what, like, supplies they need to get get the job done usually is a lot of reminding me to buy copy paper. But for the, for the go, no go, I mean, we have a matrix, and I think partially inspired by this podcast, because we were like, we need to just, like, put down what we think are the things. So as a team in the old office, we did that. And it's like a matrix of four. Yeah, I know. I'm also looking for it. Of four chunks. Like one is, does it align with future firms' interests and vision? That has like a little lightning bolt emoji. There's another one that is like, do we have the expertise to do this? Or can we put together the team? And there's another one that is like, do we have the capacity to do it in terms of schedule? And then, is, then there's another one, is it profitable? And it has like the little money flying away emoji. And um, and I think that we try to hit, if we do, if it hits three, we do it. If it hits four, we definitely do it. If it hits two, then we debate. Um, mm-hmm. And those are, that's the kind of structure. Because if it's yeah. like really profitable and we have the expertise, but it totally does not align with the mission um, and we're like stretch on capacity, that to me is a potential. Is the matrix topic. weighed? It's, some topics are prioritized in it. 
No, they're no, even. They're even. Uh, so, you know, I thought when, when I sat down to talk to you, I thought you were uh, still a firm of four to six, but now that I know you're a firm of nine. Uh, we're a firm of 10. We're a firm of 11. We're a firm of 11. Falana started today, actually. Welcome, Falana. So, so given that, uh, I mean, I was going to ask you about the kind of size of the firm and how you thought about uh, the size uh, being commensurate with types of commissions, but I'm interested both in, in that question now uh, and also in the way in which it affects these decisions of go, no go. The big goals are the big goals are everybody goes home on time, everyone makes good money, and we work on great projects. And often it feels like we have to choose two out of three, right? Like I think that our hours are good, but they're not great. When it comes to grant deadline in the city, everyone is like pushing really hard. I think that because we err on the side of taking on more work than we have capacity for, than less. We've never had to lay off, and I'm not saying it won't happen in the future, but we are extremely proud that we've never had to lay off. But it means that sometimes there's more heat on the team because we have overextended in terms of the work we take on. I want to bring up everyone's, how much money everyone is making so that people don't feel like they have to choose between going to a firm that does boring, stable projects and makes money and a firm that, like, does interesting projects with change makers um, and potentially makes less money. Like, and we know this very realistically from when we try to bring good people from big firms that they are very honest with us, that they are taking pay cuts to come work with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we cannot overburden the community driven projects that have very limited budgets, right? It's one thing for a project with $50 million to have a 12% fee. If you have a $500,000 project and like, that's all the money you cannot over, you cannot, the like fee cannot exceed what is left for construction. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to balance. And yet I don't want any of our clients that we take on to feel that like we are taking them on to subsidize other projects because we don't do that. Each project really has to, we have to find a way to like work efficiently so that each project pays for itself. So we have the stability as a whole to like advance our little ship without thinking. Yeah. And I think for for Anne and I, that is some of the things that the design manual and the design framework are trying to do, which is like give some parameters to what the team works on so that hopefully we can execute things in a more efficient way. When Anne and I were working at SOM, there were many times where someone was just like, come up with, you know, three tower schemes for this site. And it was like, okay, what are the parameters? And they were like, I don't know, like, 30, nine, nine meter column spacing, but like, that's it. And so you would spend like hours going in circles trying to like figure out what the ambition of this project was. Whereas now we kind of define for the team, like here's the things that future firms interested in. Here's the process that we think we can go through to like do this efficiently. And here's the things that the client is interested in. And I hope that that results in, in things kind of moving a little faster and still um, producing really good design. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'm also thinking as a young firm, it also has to do with like access to capital, right? Somebody asked me if you had 500K in the bank that was just there, no strings attached, what kind of new risks would you take? And that sunk in in a way that was very real, which is, I do think Future Firm is fairly risk tolerant, actually. But um, yeah, if I had if we had a million dollars in the bank that we knew no matter what would be there and that we could weather more downs and ups, not to say like we wouldn't pay it back into the bank. Right. But if we had that, yeah, like the world would be really different. Um, right now we have to, we like, I feel like we like maintain this like tenuous little balance um, so that we can all continue continuing. Mm-hmm. I have uh, two small questions and the bigger one left. So let me just give them to you uh, as they come. One is, did you have a chance to regret taking or not taking a commission? I can think of two examples of early projects that I really regret taking. One was a residential client that we just did like hours and hours of work for and who was like perpetually disappointed with us. 
And it was so early in the firm that I kept being like, what are we, like, I know that we're not bad architects. Like, I hope we're not bad architects. So like, how are we screwing this up so bad? And like, in hindsight, it was that that person wanted to do this addition to their house for like $5 and that we could not. We could do magic. That we could not do magic to make that happen. Um, Now we would just say so. Yeah. There was, and then there's a proposal that I deeply regret putting together that we didn't actually get the project, but this uh, doctor called us. He wanted to do uh, it's always residential. <laughs> he wanted to do a renovation of a house in um, in the Gold Coast, like you know, very nice neighborhood in Chicago. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna like I'll come take a look at it. He like gave me a tour of this like busted graystone that he wanted to renovate. And on the way out the door, he looked at me and he said. Now make sure that your fee is competitive because $10,000 I don't spend on you is $10,000 I can put towards a really nice tub. I was like, that was rude. And then I still put together the proposal, which in hindsight was like, so it was a bad idea and sent it to, and it was for some ridiculously small amount of money. It was for like, I don't know, I think $35,000 or something to renovate a three-story house. I don't think $10 million, but it was small. And uh, he wrote back and he was just like, this is outrageous. I would never pay an architect this much. I'm a doctor. I could have introduced you to all my other doctor friends. Like you made a big mistake, not giving me a better proposal. And I just like, I, I, I don't know. I, I get it. <laughs> at that moment I was like, Oh my God, we have entered this profession that is totally a dead end. Like what are we going to do? <laughs> Yeah, I think Craig felt very forlorn after that. He was like, this business, like, the future firm's not going to work. And I was like, you're right. Like, we'll just focus on teaching. <laughs> um, have uh, I, this maybe isn't one that I regret, um, but we pursued a project that I actually think we would have done a great job at, which was also a partnership with a bigger firm that I think required a diverse component to their team. And the pursuit was good. I actually think the team was great. Um, but then when we went to the interview, I had to meet with the CEO of this big firm company because they were like, it'll be weird if Anne and this guy have never met each other in their interview. So like, we have coffee and I'm like, oh, how are you doing? He's like, oh yeah, I've been like traveling around. I'm like so busy and exhausted because you know, like I have to check on all the correctional projects. I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, like our bread and butter, we don't show it on the website. Like our bread and butter is presents. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like we got, like we just wasted for a small firm to pursue a project. That is investment of thousands of dollars of my time. I was like, and you're blindsiding me over coffee five minutes before we go into this interview that your bread and butter is prisons. Like, and I would have never, never said yes to that in the beginning. And it just felt like, and then it was like, you're going to prom in the interview with this person who like in your heart, you're just like, F it. Like, I would say that one. I don't know. I still think we would have done a good job, but I felt, um, yeah, I felt, I felt the the wool pulled over my eyes <laughs> from that one, and I regretted it. So uh, I've been dwelling on an on another definition of architecture that you've already shared with the public, or maybe a definition of architecture's agency as a discipline or architect's agency as individuals, uh, and it may be worth quoting you in full. Um, you said, we believe the agency of architecture as a discipline and as a practice emerges from first, the ability of architects to visualize vibrant new futures, which respond to urgent ecological, political, and economic crisis. Second, from architects' unique skill at manipulating the extremely complex technical, bureaucratic, and material conditions through which we can manifest those new futures. And then you say, as a discipline, we need to energetically take up this agency and not spend all our time ensuring ourselves against it. And I thought you should comment on these points um, and maybe given them, tell us about the conditions in which you do your best work or would prefer to do your work. And by conditions, I mean, you know, circumstances of practice. Yes. I think we feel different about insurance now. (laughs) (laughs) I do feel like we um, have more insurance. Um, What do I think? Do you have a thought? No, you go first. I think that we feel, and this maybe goes back to the question of like, how do we put a name to all the things we do? Which is that if you look at the AIA contracts to the letter, 
they worked very hard to circumscribe the extent of an architect's agency. And I think we've seen in the projects that we've worked on that if we were to hold to that limit, we would never get the projects done that really need to happen to make Chicago or any city facing inequality, which is anyone, uh, better, right? And sometimes we are reminded of this when folks join the firm and they come from larger firms and they're, they'll say like, like, should we be doing this? This isn't in our scope or like, hey, this takes on a lot of risk or, um, you know, shouldn't that be the owner who's doing that or whatever? Or like, why, you know? And Craig and I, I think, are self-conscious about it because we're wondering if some of it comes from us having been scrappy. On the other hand, if we project this at a bigger scale, not just our firm, if like we as architects collectively decided that we could take on more risk, but like on behalf of things that um, are going to make the city better, I think more change could happen faster and that that is important. Um, the flip side of that is what we talked about before, which is risk. Now it's not just us. It was very easy when it was just us to, 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 make, to take bigger risks. Now it is the bigger firm and it is our kid. And suddenly we feel less, I, I feel, I can already feel that weighing on how I engage risky conditions that deviate from how other architects would describe the standard of care, uh, broadly writ. Um, and so I think that is a thing that is really tr tricky. Like how do we maintain our ability to like fight in the way that we know needs to happen, but without putting the team and like their families and our family, like, at a risk of losing our jobs or our paychecks. No. And that is about insurance. <laughs> I think we were once at an event with Stanley Tigerman where he was kind of emphatically talking about the, the discipline versus the profession. And, and I think that within the, and he, he had this kind of narrow definition as the like, profession as people that were out making money off of architecture and the discipline as kind of architecture broadly written. And for me, this was in the context of in, within the discipline of architecture, we are often talking about how we can expand the definition of what architecture is and how architecture can address many other issues. Within the profession of architecture, we are constantly narrowing it. The architect is doing less and less. And I think specific examples of this are in, for instance, um, in affordable housing, we're doing an affordable housing with Brian Lee from uh, affordable housing studio with Brian Lee from SOM at IIT right now. And one of the like offhand comments Brian made is uh, developers, they'll tell you all the time that the corridor has to be five foot six. There's no other dimension for a corridor in affordable housing. And there are these kind of small things that the architect has basically become a stenographer for the developers pro forma. And they say, we want it to be five over one, we want it to have this many bedrooms and this many bathrooms and the bedrooms have to be exactly the minimum square footage of the state requirements and the hallway has to be five foot six. And you, you kind of get to this point where it's like, what what do you need the architect for? What are we even doing here? What, yeah, what, what are we doing here? And, but I think that this is because architects have tried to eliminate and narrow their, their risk, the, the kind of work that they are willing to do the items that they are willing to engage. And by doing that, by narrowing what the profession will do, we have narrowed the architect as a profession to something that feels sometimes like it almost doesn't exist anymore. So I think part of the reason the future firm takes on this additional risk, like engages our clients in this more robust way is simply because Anne and I want to feel like architecture is doing something and we don't want to be bored out of our mind at our jobs. Um, and I hope that like the profession of architecture can kind of look at the discipline, broadening the definition and start to pull some things back in. Construction administration services would be like a good place to start. All right. Is there anything else you would like to put on the record? I don't think so. Now is the time. I don't think so. I think we are inspired by this podcast in that it has challenged us to articulate better the things we say no to 
Um, and yeah, and I, I, I sense it will do that for other firms as well. Well, that's great to hear. So, Anne and Craig, thank you very much for talking to me today. And listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of I Would Prefer Not To.